Hey, this is Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm in Greenville, South Carolina at the Great Homeschool Convention. I got my lanyard, got my CMI shirt. We set up our booth last night full of books. I'm getting ready for the doors to open and a horde of people to swirl in here. I love doing homeschool conventions. We've been doing this for about 15 years and I have not yet gotten tired of it. This is going to be a lot of fun. But before we start, and my weekend is taken up selling books and talking to people, I want to discuss with you something really interesting. That is how bacteria misled us. How the study of bacteria prevented people from discovering the reality of the complexity of higher organisms. Now, to be fair, bacteria are easy to work with, and so therefore it was natural to start with them. And bacteria can give us a pretty clear signal between a mutation and the phenotype, or the way the bacterium looks or behaves. And so there was a really easy to do experiments on them. And they grow really fast and have a really short reproductive time. And so they really lent themselves to a lot of fundamental studies in biology. But they are very different from higher organisms. And the bacterial genome is not like, say, the human genome. And therefore, in some ways, studying bacteria prevented us from seeing the reality of the complexity of higher organisms, sometimes for decades. Let me explain. A lot of times in science, science will go down a road that's actually a dead end, but you don't know it's a dead end for a long time. And when you realize it's a dead end, and you say, hey, I'm not gonna go down this road, I'm gonna contradict this, then you have to go against the prevailing paradigms of the day, the explanatory models that everyone's using, and you're gonna have to go against the people who are in the power centers of science who earn their spurs going down this bad road. And so what are you gonna do? You're gonna fight the system like that? No, it, it is really difficult. Now, progress was made by studying other simple organisms like C. elegans, the roundworm, or Arabidopsis, which is a, in a mustard family. It's a really common experimental plant. Uh, maybe some mice. Um, e. coli, of course, is what we're talking about mainly. Uh, Drosophila, that's a fruit fly. Those organisms were used to do a lot of other work also. But most of the work done on the organisms with more complexity was in the context of what we could do with bacteria who have a fairly low complexity. And the thought was that, oh, a mutation can arise, natural selection could focus on that mutation, and it can drive some effective change over time. And because we can see that happening in bacteria, therefore it must be also true in higher organisms. Well, it's not that simple, and that's where the interesting part lies. So here's a short list of many different possibilities of things that bacteria told us that were actually wrong. First is the thought that the cell is simple. Now, the simple cell comes all the way back from Darwin's day. Uh, he and his colleagues uh, were talking about spontaneous generation. People were talking about the slime in the bottom of the ocean from this protoplasm from which life was just spontaneously arising. It was all nonsense, but the thought that life is simple, therefore it can evolve, uh, one of the fundamental aspects of evolutionary biology. Because if life is simple, evolution could be possible, but the more complex it is, the less possible evolution is. And so they found some simple examples and some simple systems to study and they could see change. And they said, oh, we just got to extrapolate over millions of years. Now we can explain people. No, it doesn't work that way. But the thought that the cell is simple really came from studies, especially of, of bacteria. So for instance, when they found that 98% of the human genome doesn't code for protein, what did they say? Oh, that's not the important bits. It's only the 2% that's important. The other stuff is just junk DNA etc etc another mistake was made in the 1940s this is something called the one gene one enzyme hypothesis now this was developed before we knew that dna was a carrier of of cellular information 
Back then, people were really thinking proteins carried the information because proteins were complex, proteins were variable. DNA was just an acid, it's a long string of random letters. They didn't realize what it was yet. But the one gene, one enzyme hypothesis was the thought that a gene produced a protein, the protein called an enzyme, did something in the cell. And there should be a one-to-one -one correspondence. Now, in bacteria, that's mostly true. And we found a lot of things. This gene in the bacterium produces this protein. This protein has this effect in, in the organism cell. So it worked really well. That's not true for higher organisms. It's not even remotely true. One of the first episodes that I ever did on biblical genetics was on splicing and dicing the human genome, how we can explain how the human genome can produce hundreds of thousands of proteins, but there's only 20 something thousand genes. Because it's not true, there's a link between each gene and each protein produced. Not at all true, and bacteria prevented us from seeing that for a very long time. Another issue with bacteria is that they don't have a lot of non-protein coding DNA. Most of their genome codes for protein or codes directly for a uh, functional RNA. They don't have much of the so-called junk DNA, uh, which isn't junk at all, we'll get to that in a second, but that means that they're so functional that when something happens in the cell, it very often has a pretty profound effect. Higher organisms are a lot more flexible. They're a lot more algorithmic. They're just very different. And so we're looking for things in the higher organisms say, oh, we change that, we do that. We change this, this happens. And it was really hard to actually discover the way that higher genomes work because of that. So yeah, in a fruit fly, you can find a gene, you change that letter and all of a sudden the fruit fly has white eyes instead of red eyes. Okay, fine. But that's not the way most of the information in the genome is encoded. We're not encoded in the protein. Most of the information is in the non-protein coding area. And because it had focused on bacteria being simple, the cell being simple, and a direct correspondence between a gene and an enzyme, and a thought that evolution must be true, therefore, you know, life's gotta be kind of simple for it to happen. Well, it's another cul-de-sac that we went down, it took us decades to figure it out. But there are two different paradoxes associated with this. One is called the G-value paradox, that is, there is no direct link between the number of genes, the gene, the G-value paradox, the number of genes in an organism and the complexity of the organism. There's no link at all. The amoeba has a lot more genes than humans, a huge amount of number of genes. There are plants that have tons and tons and tons of genes, while other plants in the same genus even don't have that many genes. Well, to be fair, a lot of plants, their genomes would duplicate or even quadruplicate. So a lot of things that we grow, like corn and rice and, um, and wheat, you can look at the, the wild grasses from which those things are derived. They have the same genes. It's just that corn has twice as many, maybe four times as many genes because the, the chromosomes have been duplicated or quadruplicated. But what that means is that there's no direct link between complexity and the number of genes. And that was a bit of a mystery. I mean, how come amoeba has more genes than humans? Interesting. Well, following that, there's another paradox called the C-value paradox. That's the complexity paradox. There is not a direct link between gene content and complexity. There are genes in uh, the sea squirt. There are genes in sponges. There are genes in really simple animals that humans also have. In fact, after we sequenced the human genome, we said, oh, this is something really important for vertebrate genomics. No, actually, it's in the sea squirt also. They don't have vertebra. Oh, so there's these paradoxes. If you don't have, if gene content doesn't predict complexity, and if gene number doesn't predict complexity, where's the complexity come from? 
Is it true that humans are just simply animals? Or are we different? In fact, we are very different. The complexity in our genomes is orders of magnitude greater than other species. It's even greater than chimpanzees, much greater because of something else in the non-protein coding regions. And the study of bacteria prevented us from seeing that for a long time. Yet another area of bacterial studies that caused a little detour was the study of transcription factors. These are proteins that are made and they stick to DNA and they turn genes on and they turn genes off. Okay, fine. They really do exist in bacteria. They also exist in things like people. Okay, fine. But that is not the main control of genetic activity in higher organisms. Yes, they're there, but the, the proteins that are attaching and detaching the DNA, it depends very much on the modifications of DNA made by RNA, the modifications of histones made by RNA, the folding of the chromosomes that is controlled by RNA. So yeah, transcription factors have an effect and they are important. They're not nearly as important in higher organisms than they are in bacteria. So using that as a model, it produces a bad model for people and even fruit flies or mice or anything that's really complex. Another thing in bacteria that's not true in higher organisms that prevented us from understanding higher organisms for a long time is the fact that in bacteria, genes that are used together are often found in cassettes. So the classic lac operon, when it's turned on, the cell has the ability to digest lactose. Usually it doesn't digest lactose, usually it digests glucose. But when it digests lactose, um, a repressor protein leaves the DNA strand, some things attach the DNA strand, and then these three protein coding genes downstream are transcribed into RNA and then translated into protein. And those three proteins are the things that the cell uses to digest lactose. But they're turned on as a group, as an operon it's called. It doesn't work that way in humans. I remember after they sequenced the human genome, one of the first papers I read afterwards, maybe a year or two afterwards, the people were looking at genes that are used together in biochemical pathways in humans. And they found out they're not next to each other in the genome. In fact, they're scattered about willy-nilly. They're randomly distributed. They're in different chromosomes. They're forward and backwards. Oh, they said, it's just junk. There's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no order to it. It's just millions of years of evolutionary experiments. Yeah, that didn't last very long because a short time later, people started treating the cell with formaldehyde. And when you do that, the DNA will cross-link. So any DNA is next to itself in 3D space will form a bond. Then when you chop up the DNA, you can sequence the arms of that X, and that will tell you which genes are next to each other in 3D space. And it turns out that the genes that are used together are next to each other in 3D, not in the, on the same chromosome, not in order, not in line, not an operon. So higher organisms have a much more complex relationship between the genome and the output of proteins. In fact, the regulation happens not in a simple little thing that turns on or turns off a series of genes. The regulation happens in the folding of the chromosomes and how they're partitioned in space. In fact, um, the chromosomes will be um, partitioned in little pockets. All the genes that are used together are in their own little pocket. And the pocket will be connected to a nuclear pore. So when it's time to turn on a biochemical pathway, all the genes involved can turn on at the same time and their RNAs can go right out the same pore, and the ribosome outside that's gonna make it into a protein, it's tuned to work with that set of protein coding genes specifically.
this very high level information here, we do not see that in bacteria. And the fact that in bacteria, you can model the genomic systems in a lot of ways in Boolean, that is ones and zeros, true or false, yes and no. Just like a computer works in ones and zeros and in binary, digital, a lot of things in bacteria you can model that way. So is a transcription factor present? That's a one. If the transcription, I can't say that. So if the transcription factor is present, that's a one. If the transcription factor is absent, that's a zero. That's very easy. You can't do that in higher organisms. In fact, most genes, there are multiple things impacting the function of that gene. Multiple things all vying for attention at the same time. In fact, the histones that the DNA wraps around that have a profound impact on cellular expression patterns of genes, well, they have tails that can be modified 20 or 30 different ways by different RNAs, by different proteins. The, there's no Boolean operation here. You can't reduce the complexity of living things to a simple decision tree. And if you tried, it would be larger than the number of letters in the genome. Because the information in the genome is organized, in higher organisms, is organized in incredibly complex ways that are not easily explainable using simple analyses and simple analogies. Another curveball that bacteria threw us is the fact that they don't have what are called introns or intervening spaces in the protein coding regions of genes. We do, we have a lot of introns. The introns have to be cut out of the RNA and the exons join together before a protein can be formed. But sometimes those introns have genes in them. Protein coding genes, sometimes those introns will form a microRNA or a link RNA or an RNA that does something else in the genome. So when that thing is being transcribed, there's another factor being produced that might affect that gene or another gene or something else in the genome, something else in the cell. It's super complicated. And the coding pattern for cutting out those exons, sometimes the exons are, are left, sometimes they're removed, sometimes the introns are left, sometimes the the gene will code right through the intron and include that spacer thing in a protein and sometimes not. It was a big mystery when they started looking at gene size in what are called eukaryotes. I'm going to use that word because I should have said it this whole time. Eukaryotes, things with a nucleus. The 1960s, they said, um, hey, these genes are a lot bigger than the protein. In bacteria, there's three times as many letters as there are amino acids because it's three letters of the RNA codes for one amino acid during translation, but in us, that wasn't true. And it took us a long time to figure it out. So at first they said, oh, these are just intervening spaces, they're garbage. Now that's not true anymore. They're incredibly important, highly regulated, and very often highly functional. So what I've been saying this whole time is that complexification happens at the level of RNA, not DNA. It happens at the level of RNA, not protein. And since bacteria don't produce nearly as many functional RNAs as higher organisms, we didn't see it. And for a long time, they just, they just said the rest of the non-protein coding region is a junk. That was a hugely important paradigm throughout the 70s and 80s, even the 90s, even the 2000s. Some people even believe it today, even though it's certainly not true, it's demonstrably not true. They're still holding on to this thought. Because once the genome becomes highly functional, evolution doesn't work. You can't explain something like the difference between humans and chimpanzees in six million years if you had that millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of genetic differences. If you only had a few thousand, a few hundred genetic differences, yeah, you could probably explain it. 
but it's beyond explanation right now, which is one reason why some people are desperately holding on to the theory that half of the, or more of the genome is just junk. So the study of bacteria led to a great confidence that evolution was going to be explainable, that the cell was simple enough, and there's a direct enough connection between the genotype and the phenotype that natural selection can explain bacteria and therefore higher organisms. And they avoided the complexity of higher organisms for a long time, but they can't get away with that anymore. And I'm very happy to say that. Because you see, complexity demands a designer. And this is one reason why they don't want to go there. Okay, that was my quick summary of just a couple of points on how bacteria prevented us from actually discovering how complex higher organisms are. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it wasn't too complicated. I hope the background noise wasn't too too big. There's still people pulling hand trucks in here and people setting up booths and stuff like that. But I'm going to work on the audio after the fact and maybe I'll get it cleaned up. And by the way, this is my 75th biblical genetics episode. I cannot believe that I've had this many episodes. I would not be here without my supporters. People on buymeacoffee.com who every month or so might buy me a digital coffee and my monthly supporters on patreon.com. Thank you so much. God bless you. I hope you're encouraged by what I said. I hope you learned a little bit. There's more coming in the future.